Well, it's uh, fitting that my kids greeted me when I walked on stage, because uh, they're the start of this message tonight. We were sitting, having dinner this week, and uh, our awesome children's ministry provided these bags with Lent guides, and so each night over dinner, uh, my wife and I eat a lot faster than our kids. I know you're surprised by that. Uh, but while they're waiting to, to finish eating, we'll read a passage of scripture that's on the road to Easter and talk about some questions. And one question came up probably three or four nights ago, and the question was this, why do we call it Good Friday? And I think sometimes if you've been around church for any number of years, or just if you've been overly familiar with something in your life, you'll understand that at a certain point, you just stop asking these kind of questions. That curiosity diminishes, and it's replaced with familiarity. And, and so I just want to begin tonight with recognizing that tonight is called Good Friday for a very specific reason. None of us were actually there. We look at tonight across 2,000 years. But if we were standing there in the moment, experiencing what, what David just beautifully sang about, there's lots of adjectives that we would use to describe this day. We would pick words like terrible, horrible, exhausting, depressing, discouraging, horrifying, dark, bad. We'd run through a lot of adjectives before we would ever get to the word good. And we only call it good because we know the rest of the story. And we look back across 2,000 years at the event that happened on Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so I want to I paint a picture for you today using these two boxes that I have on stage. You see, I have this one right here that I asked somebody to beautifully wrap for me because I am not a box wrapping person. I'm more of a throw it in a bag and put some tissue paper on top and call it a day. Uh, that's kind of my approach to gifts. Uh, but I've got a friend who's great at wrapping gifts, and so she wrapped this for me. And this is beautiful. It's exactly what I wanted. It's what I never do. Uh, but it's beautifully, beautifully wrapped. And for a lot of us, Good Friday is like this box. We see it as good. We, we don't think about the messiness and the difficulty of it. It's, it's Good Friday. It's, it's Good Friday. But, but if we were to live through the first Friday, it would look more like this one. I asked my, my friend Josh McClintock to wrap this for me. I think Josh is better at wrapping than this, but I said, hey, I want it to look terrible, and he did a great job. I see some uh, Del Taco and Arby's coupons on here. If anybody needs some dinner later, just come by and find me. I'll hook you up. Um, but it's, it's not wrapped well. I mean, if on the top, you can't really see this, but the, the box really doesn't even close. I mean, it's just, it's just not something that I would... If I saw it under the tree on Christmas, I'd be excited to get. And this is what Friday was like for those who experienced it. It, uh, it was unresolved. It didn't fit. It didn't make sense. It didn't work out. They all walked away going, what now? What just happened? That was not what any of us saw coming. And so today, I've entitled this short message, No 
bows today. Because I want to encourage you, I in some ways want to invite you to experience today and tomorrow like this. A mess. Unresolved. Uncertain. Not neatly and nicely wrapped with a bow. And I want to encourage you by asking you this question. What if we stayed present in this week as it was happening? Instead of jumping ahead to how we know the story works out, what if we walked through today and tomorrow as if we didn't know? As if we were experiencing it like everyone did 2,000 years ago. Because I think because we tend to jump to the bow We leave so much out. We miss out on so much. And I want to share with you some pieces that I've experienced as I've embraced a no-bows approach. If you're taking notes today here or at home, I've got three lessons I want to share with you from the last 24 hours of Jesus. If we really press into them, we'll see these clearly. The first one is that Jesus wrestled with his Father. Jesus wrestled with his father. Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And we see his humanity maybe in no more stark picture in these final hours on Thursday evening. In the book of Matthew, chapter 26, we read these words that Jesus came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, which literally means the crushing, because it was was an olive tree. Orchard, and it was where the olives were crushed. And he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to Peter, James, and John, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Now, I think we all have people in our lives who tend to be dramatic. When they tell a story, it's over the top. Everything that happens to them is a super big deal. If we're going to be honest today, and I think we should, some of you, I'm that person in your life, because that's kind of like me. But I don't think any of us would ever say Jesus is that person. Oh, yeah, you know, Jesus, he's just always making things way bigger than they have to be. You know, he's just super dramatic. So when he says, I'm grieved to the point of death, I I think he's he's dead serious. In the book of Luke, here's how Luke records this moment. He says, when he reached the place, Jesus told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, Jesus prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. See, I I think the temptation is to view Jesus in his final moments kind of like this. He's in deep thought, you know, he's, he's focused, but he's not really struggling that much. I mean, after all, he's God. But this moment in Luke 22 shows us a a very different picture that Jesus is wrestling with his father because he knows what lies ahead. And in his humanity, he's wrestling with 
is that something I really want to do? It shows us that he is 100% human. And, and Luke tells us that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. Modern day researchers and medical experts tell us that this is a condition that happens when the forehead becomes so stressed that the sweat glands mix with the broken capillaries and sweat begins to come out along with drops of blood. If you've been stressed at any point this year, have you, have you sweat blood yet? Thank you. My oldest son. Um, so, sweat drops of blood. And so if you've been stressed this year, if you've faced things that are difficult in your life, I mean, haven't we all, in some place or on some level, the, the takeaway from this is that wrestling with God is not a sin. Because Jesus was perfect and sinless. And if he goes to a garden and sweats blood because of the stress and the angst and the anguish and the grief, and he wrestles with his father and comes out saying, not my will, but yours be done. I just want to tell you tonight that wrestling with God is not a sin. And Jesus gets your wrestle. If you're wrestling through everything that's happened in the last 13 months, everything you've gone through, everything God's allowed to come into our world and your life, and you've wrestled with it and gone, man, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. This is difficult. Jesus gets your wrestle because he's done the same thing. The second lesson when you take a, a no-bows approach, you realize is that Jesus suffered. And I, I've been studying this story for a couple decades now, and I'm still seeing things I never saw before. In the book of John, chapter 19, we read that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. We read this passage as part of our message this past Sunday, if you were with us. And the soldiers also twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. The Romans perfected two different types of torture— that we know about in this story. They, they probably perfected many of them. They were a brutal empire. But two of them that Jesus experienced were flogging and crucifixion. See, in a flogging, uh, uh, a cat of nine tails like this would be used. It was a, a whip attached to a baton. And in this rendering of it, there are metal spikes on it. Other times you'd use bone or pottery. And Jesus, as the victim of the Flogging would have been tied around a post with his back exposed. And behind him, uh, a soldier would have taken that whip 40 times minus one. For those of you who aren't good at math, that's 39. But if the soldier was particularly brutal, he had the license to go even more. And it would tear open the skin, which, by the way, Jesus' sweaty blood instance did not help him. It meant that his skin was even more thin and sensitive. And many times, flogging led to death. It's kind of a miracle that Jesus even survived it. So that when he goes to the cross, in modern-day medical terms, Jesus was in serious or even critical condition. His heart rate had probably started slowing down because there was less blood to pump. His kidneys may have, stopped, may have started shutting down because of their 
brutal exposure through the flogging. And then at the cross, his crown of thorns is, is met with metal spikes that he might hang on the cross. All the artistic renderings you've probably seen of Jesus includes the spikes going through his hands. Modern day science tells us they couldn't have gone through his hands because his hand would have slid off the cross. And in the ancient world, the wrist was included with the hand. So his, his nail probably went through his, uh, his wrist right here in between his two arm bones, his radius and his ulna. Anybody in them ever hit their funny bone before? You know, you just bang your elbow. Well, there's a nerve that runs from your elbow, your funny bone, all the way up to right here. And it's very likely that when that soldier nailed that spike, it literally went into the nerve that you hit when you hit your funny bone. It would have been like taking a set of pliers to that nerve and just kind of twisting it and leaving it there. The word that we use, excruciating, linguists tell us that the first time it was used was to describe the pain of a crucifixion. So the next time you use the word excruciating pain, you're describing the suffering of Jesus. And the reason that, that we talk about all of that, and I know sometimes it makes us squeamish to think about what Jesus suffered, is that you can't understand the glory and the victory of Sunday until you talk about the brutality and the darkness of Friday. We live in a culture that doesn't like to think about the suffering of Jesus and what caused Jesus to go to the cross. There are many in, in certain circles that think that we should just kind of set aside this component of our faith, that this kind of theology is toxic. But in the book of Romans, we see why Jesus had to suffer so greatly. In the book of Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. The last 13 months have revealed that there is something broken and wrong in our world. And it's much bigger than COVID-19. And all of us, all of us, no matter what your belief about God or your belief about Jesus, you have to recognize something is broken and wrong in the world. And Paul here in Romans says, what's broken is sin, and all of us have sinned. He continues in verse 15 by saying, the gift is not like the trespass, for if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man Jesus has overflowed to the many. So we see our own sin, and then in the cross we see the hope for all who have sinned because of what Jesus does in our behalf. Paul concludes, if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered so that we could be healed. And until we recognize just how much we suffered, we don't appreciate the healing that is possible. The third lesson that I've taken from this kind of no-bows approach to Good Friday is that Jesus knows. 
Jesus knows. A couple years ago, I read a beautiful and haunting book. The book is called When Breath Becomes Air. It's written by a man named Paul Kalanithi. Paul was a brilliant neurosurgeon. Many of his surgeries saved the lives of people who were battling brain cancer. Paul was incredibly successful, in demand, and on top of his career. Until one day, he discovered that he had brain cancer. The same thing he'd given his life to treating and help solving, he now was facing And in his book, When Breath Becomes Air, he talks about the fact that he walked into a specific hospital room. He walked into that room to give good news after surgery. He walked into that room to give hard news after surgery. He walked into that room to tell a family about what lie ahead. He he walked into that room to write on the whiteboard a treatment plan. He stood outside of that room to confer with other physicians about how to treat that patient. He on really long shifts, actually wished he was in the bed so he could have a nap. And now he's in the bed. Now he's the patient in the room. Now he hears the doctors outside in the hallway conferring and whispering about him. And in his book, he says, medical school teaches you how to use a scalpel, but it doesn't tell you how it feels to get cut. Medical school teaches you how to be a great physician, but it doesn't teach you how to be a patient. And as I was listening to somebody talk about their experience reading this book recently, I was reminded that that is a great picture of what happens with Jesus. The creator of all life steps into human existence and he feels The man who created, the God who created humanity, now hears the jeers and the rejection and the spitting and the slapping and the murderous cries for his crucifixion. This was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, who said, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone turned, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sickness, he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion, he was crushed for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows. The emotions that you have felt since last Good Friday, the temptations and challenges that you faced, he is not one who cannot sympathize with your weaknesses. But he is one who knows. And here's the good news. 
It's not just that Jesus can empathize with us, that he knows what it feels to face what we face. He died for us, too. And his death is the reason that we can have hope, the reason that we can have victory and find freedom even in the midst of that hurt and difficulty, that pain and that loss. So tonight, I've got a couple things I want to invite you to do with me over the next couple days. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to embrace the darkness of Friday and the silence of Saturday. When you leave tonight, the sun is already going down. You're going to leave and drive home in darkness. And I want to encourage you to not run from that darkness. To not run from the dark emotions attached to Good Friday. And then tomorrow, I don't know what you have planned, and I'm not saying you need to cancel your schedule. But Friday has, for those who experienced it, some eeriness and some silence. Some, what do we do now? To it. And I want to encourage you that the deeper the darkness, the greater the impact of dawn breaking. And the more that we can embrace the darkness of Friday, I kind of want to call this a dark Friday, but I feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle, you know, with 2,000 years of church history and billions of Christians. I'm not sure I'm going to ever win that battle, but I kind of like Dark Friday as a better title. The deeper we can allow the darkness and the more we can experience that, the greater the power of dawn breaking and what comes later in the weekend. So I'd encourage you, don't run from the silence. Don't run from the darkness. Number two, I want to encourage you tonight, before you go to bed, to write your reflections. On the back of your handout that you got when you walked in, there's a little section there that says, My Reflections, And you could take that tonight, or you could go and get a, a journal at your home. And, and I'd encourage you to spend some time reflecting on the death of Jesus and the darkness of Friday. You could reflect on some questions like these. What did you hear tonight through a song or the video or this message that connected with your current experience? What is your next step in light of, of what you heard? How does what you hear change how you live. How does this experience today impact how you're going to celebrate Sunday? In a little bit, when the service is over, we're going to give you a, a little bow to take home. It's not big enough to use on a present, so you can't repurpose this thing. But I want to encourage you to use this bow over the next couple days as a reminder of what it was like to live through Holy Weekend. For Peter, James, and John, the women, and everyone else. And embrace a, a no-boast-today kind of approach to Good Friday, and maybe experience Good Friday to a depth you never have before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to remember what you've done for us. We thank you for the taste in our mouths of bread and juice. And we pray that we would walk out of this experience with a greater and deeper appreciation of what you've done for us. Of just how bad things were that you had to come and die for us. 
and just how disorienting, shocking and surprising, confusing and disturbing those three days must have been for your followers who didn't understand how it was going to all work out and come together, who must have seemed completely crushed. We pray that as we experience the darkness and the silence of today and tomorrow, it would prepare us to celebrate what is to come. In your name we pray.